You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome again to The Way Home podcast. I'm recording here from the campus of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Texas Baptist College. And I just want to give a quick shout out if you are interested in theological education or if uh, you're interested in a Christian degree, undergrad degree, man, I can't recommend a better place in Texas Baptist College. I'm privileged enough to teach here and would love for you to check it out. Go to southwestern.edu or to texasbaptistcollege.com. I also want to tell you about a few resources we have coming up. Uh, One is my new book, The Characters of Creation. Uh, This is in my series uh, that began with the characters of Christmas and the characters of Easter. This one talks about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, I've been doing some radio and television interviews about it. Really excited about the reception so far. Uh, I would love for you to get a copy. Go to danieldarling.com and click on the book link to see it there, or just go to your favorite retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, christianbook.com, Mardell, independent bookstores, anywhere you get books, characters of creation. Then I would like to tell you about another new resource we have for small groups. This is on spiritual gifts. If your church or small group would love to do a study of the spiritual gifts, this is the supernatural way in which God has uh, gifted every Christian, and where do you fit in the church? Where do you fit in the local church? Where do you fit in the body of Christ? How do you recognize the gifts and talents of others and their unique callings as well? What does that look like? This uh, small group study will be for you. So go to lifeway.com slash spiritual gifts, or you can go to danieldarling.com and find it there as well. We'd love for you to get both of those resources, Characters of Creation or the Spiritual Gifts small group resource. Okay, today's guest you are going to love. Kristen Wagner is a friend of mine. She's been on the podcast before. She has worked for Alliance Defending Freedom for a long time. She's uh, one of the most skilled attorneys uh, in the country. She's also a devoted follower of Jesus, and uh, she has spent her career really fighting for religious liberty. And uh, we're thankful that in the last few years, we've experienced some really great victories at the Supreme Court and other courts in protecting the right of Americans to worship as they please, not infringing on American institutions. And, you know, as a Southern Baptist, teaching at a Southern Baptist institution, this really is important to us. We care about religious liberty, not just for ourselves, but for other faiths as well, even faiths that we disagree with. And so Kristen's going to come on and talk about why she uh, does this kind of work. What are some misconceptions we have about um, religious liberty? Uh, even some Christians do, not fully understanding it. And she's going to talk about the fall of Roe versus Wade and uh, the Dobbs case that Alliance Defending Freedom was a co-counsel on before the Supreme Court, what it's like to argue before the Supreme Court. You're going to love listening to Kristen Wagner. I always learn a lot from her in our conversation. So let's go right now to our conversation with Kristen Wagner. Well, I'm so glad to have my friend uh, Kristen Wagner from ADF here uh, on the Way Home podcast. Kristen, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Dan. 
Well, uh, needless to say, as we're recording this, uh, this will come out in a, in a few weeks, but as we're recording this, we're, it's kind of been a busy couple of weeks at the Supreme Court, uh, to say the least. We've had a number of important cases, the Carson case, which um, uh, struck down Maine's prohibition on funding for religious schools. And then, of course, um, the school prayer uh, case that came down. Uh, but the big one, obviously, is the um, the Dobbs case or the Hobbs case that we're all um, paying attention to, and uh, that struck down Roe versus Wade and Casey. Something that you know the pro life movement has been working on for almost fifty years. Kristen, I just want to ask you. I know bef- before we get into some of the legal arguments or some of the the things about it, as someone who has been working in the pro life movement in the pro life space uh, for a long time, what did it feel like when? you first saw that the decision came down, what what was going through your mind? You know, I think it was just very surreal. Um, for us, it it's occupied so much of the work that we have done. It's We have five generational wins that ADF works towards. Life is one of them, and that means the reversal of Roe and Casey. And sometimes you get some pretty bitter disappointments that come from the court uh, for various reasons, whether it's a decision not to take a case or a decision's written a way that you wish it had taken a larger step forward in protecting freedom. So I think as even after the leak came out, we were approaching it with great caution and afraid to get our hopes up too much, waiting for it to be final. And so there was just tremendous relief and excitement. Um, And then also just this sense of, here we go. Um, You know, now we go into the States and the, the battle is far from over to protect life and to support women, but it really gives the church an opportunity to put its money where its mouth is um, and to to show Christ's hand and his love in so many new ways. And uh, of course, ADF was a co-counsel uh, on the Dobbs case. And I just want to say, you know, on behalf of, of Christians everywhere, and I don't feel like ADF hears this enough, but you know, we're really thankful for the work that you and your team does, uh, both protecting religious liberty and standing up for life. I think sometimes it's thankless work because there's so much conversation in the Christian community about the role of the church and politics and, uh, you know, good conversations there. But really appreciate uh, the work that you and your team do on the front lines, really securing religious liberty for this and the next generation and really fighting for life. Well, thank you. I mean, there's so many of our attorneys that are here, myself included, that as young kids, you know, Roe was something we aspired to overturn, those who wanted to go into law. And I mean, I have never known a world that Roe didn't exist in. So mm-hmm. you just think about these God-sized dreams as a believer, and the outcome is always in the Lord's hands, and it's in His timing. But the fact that He allows all of us to play a role, and, and that was another thing that came to mind real quickly as I started to process this decision, is just we are so privileged to play the role that we play in the law, but n- this wouldn't have happened without all of us playing the role that God has given us, whether that be cultural advocacy, uh, you know, explaining theologically in the church why life matters to those who are engaged in, in public policy and even in grassroots political work, um, and of course, jurists and things like that. But it, it really does take all of us to create a culture that promotes human flourishing. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And you know, when I think about this decision, I was thinking to myself, I can't believe, you know, like we knew this, we kind of expected it, but it's hard to believe it's actually here as someone who got into politics and cultural stuff really because of this issue. 
It's really amazing to see and remarkable to see the strength of the pro-life movement. I was talking to someone today, and if you think about the pro-life movement, the culture was against it, the media is against it, the academies against it, pop culture, and even a lot of Christians don't understand. And yet the pro-life movement was able to persevere by taking the long view, by building institutions, by being persistent, showing up year after year day after day. It's really a remarkable testament. And I think when we look back in history, really the pro-life movement would be known as one of the, the great justice movements in history, don't you think? I absolutely think that's true. And I think that it's a good model for other cultural issues that we're facing today. Because another um, you know, piece of, of the pro-life movement and its success is, the, is scientific advancements. It's how much more we know about what happens in the womb and um, than we did in 1972, and then obviously even before that. And I believe that those scientific advancements, that as time plays out, even with the current cultural issues we're facing, we're going to see that what's in God's word proves true in a variety of ways. And that will include in establishing and demonstrating what is best for humankind. Um, and so I, I, I think it's a great model of things to come. Persistence and tenacity. ADF had a strategy, really, I think, behind the 15-week law, uh, which sort of gave rise to the... Um, the court taking up the Mississippi case. Um, it seems like it was an, it, it was obviously an intentional way to challenge the, the sort of viability standard that was, that the court had laid down. Can you talk about that strategy and how that was in the works and how that, why that was so important to getting to the place where we're at today? Well, uh, you know, the reason that we stand for life is because it is life. It's a matter of life and death. And we believe that there are consequences to the unborn children, first and foremost, who, you know, their life is destroyed and snuffed out by abortion. But we also believe there's severe consequences to families and to mothers that experience significant physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual harm as a result of, of essentially being pitted against their unborn children by what I would call an abortion industry that's more about profit than about women. So in wanting to take this issue on and to ensure that life is protected, we began to devise a plan through the law of how can we take on Roe and Casey to reverse that decision. It was egregiously wrong from the first day. Um, and it gets a little complicated in that Roe basically established a federal constitutional right to abortion, and it used the trimester framework to do that. But essentially, that was just policymaking by the court. It wasn't based on the party's arguments or science or anything. And then about 30 years later, well, actually 20 years later, in 1992, um, the court considered another decision in Casey. And in Casey, the court seemed to recognize the frailty of Roe and the fact that it really couldn't be supported well through logic or legal analysis. So while it kept the right to abortion, saying it was a federal right, it just threw out that trimester framework and came up with a brand new framework called the viability rule and basically said that states' hands have to be tied, that they can't do anything to protect life prior to viability, at least in any meaningful way. And that then became the rule that the states had to abide by. So in a 15-week law, most people construe the viability rule to basically say that states have very limited ability to protect life from 22 weeks on. If a state were to pass a law that is less than 22 weeks and, and really in that 15-week stage, 
we believed that the Supreme Court would have to take a close look and overturn Roe and Casey in order to uphold a 15-week law. And scientifically, we know now that at 15 weeks, I mean, that baby has eyelids, it opens and closes her eyes, she sucks her thumb, she moves freely and likely even feels pain. So we also knew that the science would be on our side as well as the law. That's really good. And uh, again, we're grateful for the strategy that really, really got us to this point. We, we obviously know that now that um, Roe is overturned, this is just the beginning of the pro-life movement in some ways. I mean, it's 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 the end of one chapter and it's the beginning of another where uh, we have to move state by state to try to limit or uh, get abortion out, out, outlawed. And a lot of people are, there's a lot of conversations of what a post-Roe strategy looks like for the pro-life movement. What I'm grateful is uh, our pro-life organizations are, have really been thinking about this for a while. ADF has a kind of a life after Roe strategy. Uh, what does that look like uh, for, for you and for ADF? We do. We have a, a fairly large legislative team and obviously a litigation team. And, and I think just before I get into that, I do want to just add that um, in terms of that Roe strategy in the courtroom, we needed a strong attorney general and a strong solicitor general in a state to make those arguments. And so while we were able to play a role in drafting Mississippi's law and serving um, on the legal team for Mississippi, ultimately it was the solicitor general and the attorney general of Mississippi that decided to go for it. And that was a brave, brave decision on behalf of Attorney General Fitch um, to do that. So I just, I just wanted to make that clear that it was such a privilege to see someone stand up um, with such courage and, and seize that moment. Um, and, and we don't see enough of that, I think, of politics. So uh, in terms of where we go from here, Mississippi is also a great example. You know, they have passed uh, different tax programs and things to ensure that women in their state are cared for when they choose life. Um, there are some 30 pregnancy resource centers. Um, they provided millions of dollars in ultrasounds, thousands of ultrasounds to people, and they're walking with women who are choosing life. And we, we will see other states do that. So I think there's kind of a two-pronged approach. One is how are we going to care for women that choose life? And we all play a role in that. And then a second is something else we all play a role in, which is engaging in that robust discussion in our states to ensure that pro-life policies are passed um, and adopted in our communities. And that's where the fight heads to next. So we have a, a strategy to do that in each state, and we're partnering with other pro-life organizations to stand. But ultimately, it is going to take the people, the people of those states to talk with their neighbors and to be present at the polls and to demonstrate what it looks like to provide care to those in need. Um, so we can get into the legal technicalities, but I can tell you ADF expects to be assisting legislators in passing laws that are life-affirming on the legislative side, but we also expect to be assisting attorney generals um, and intervening in cases to ensure that laws that have already been passed to protect life will be upheld. Hmm. Well, uh, I, I'm grateful for, for the post-Roe strategy, and I I really am grateful for the creative ways that people are thinking about, not just on the legal front, but as you said, to take care of women and families in crisis and, and babies. And uh, I really do think the pro-life movement is going to step up. The church is going to step up. And I'm. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like. Um, I, I want to pivot a little bit and just talk about your work on religious liberty, um, because uh, ADF 
along with other religious liberty uh, organizations, have really been out there fighting for religious liberty. It's been a good day in the courts, uh, a good year, I think, in the, in the Supreme Court and, uh, to lay down some foundational um, protections for religious liberty. You know, sometimes we'll hear Christians say um, things like, why should we fight for our right for religious liberty? You know, Jesus said we should lay down our rights, or the Bible says we should lay down our rights. How do you answer that question? Is that a biblical way of thinking when, when people wonder why it is we are fighting for uh, religious freedom? I don't think that it's a biblical way of thinking for a couple of reasons. I think there are some examples in Scripture of where um, those in Scripture appealed to their legal rights when they were in situations. Um, so I think we can take those models. But I would say even more importantly, the rights that we are talking about, the right of religious freedom, the right of free speech, the right to life, these are rights that are based in us being made in the image of God. And as an image bearer of God, we believe that these rights come with our humanity, that he gave them to us. The government doesn't create the right to religious freedom. It simply is guaranteed in the Constitution, and rightly so. So we believe in religious freedom for all people because we believe there are jurisdictions, and there are some jurisdictions that the state does not have the authority to touch, and that is our duty to God. Obviously, not to put others in harm's way. Um, you know, there are limits to that, and we can talk about how the law meets out those limits. But first and foremost, religious freedom comes from the fact that we are image bearers of God and that there are certain duties we owe to Him. And I think that's a very biblical concept. I also would say a third area is just the Cultural Commission. We talk about the Great Commission and the Cultural Commission, and those two work together when it comes to religious freedom. If you were to ask people in other countries whether they would like to have religious freedom or if they're happy being persecuted, if they think that the gospel flourishes even more in persecution, which I have heard some American Christians say, they're going to tell you they would rather have just laws. Um, they would rather be able to share the gospel as unfettered as possible. Um, and I, I think that that's right. We know that countries that have religious freedom and free speech, that they have less poverty, they have less war, they have less violence, they have more civil liberties in other areas. The vulnerable are protected Minorities are more protected. Um, human flourishing is just more existent when we have religious freedom. And so there are all kinds of reasons to protect it. It's not just about protecting Christians or the Christian faith. Mm, that's really good. Um, and and I, would, I would argue, in addition to everything that you said, uh, you know, it's a stewardship that we have uh, as, as citizens of a de uh, representative democracy that you know, if we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, how can we say we do if we're not working to ensure that our neighbor can live with a free conscience? And I, one of the things you've you've said a lot to me over the years, and I really have thought about, is that we're not just fighting for religious liberty for today, but we're fighting for our children and our children's children to be able to worship freely. And when you think about that, it really is important. Absolutely. Um, you know, the the ability to be able to express what you believe. Um, to be able to freely engage in dialogue and debate, that's how you discern truth um, in many ways. And if you think about living in a country where you can no longer do that, um, it, it is going to have an impact on the number of people reached. And we believe God can do anything. But at the same time, we also know, as you said, he's called us to be stewards and of all of the resources that he's given us. And as long as we live in this country, we need to wisely steward the freedoms that we have. And, and that's why we're focused on generational wins at ADF. Sometimes I get questions, what do you mean by that term? 
Well, we use the term to emphasize that it's up to each generation to steward that freedom. So I'm stewarding it for my kids, and I expect them to steward it for their kids. And we see victories like Roe versus Wade being overturned when we steward our seasons that God has given us. Uh, we, we've seen some victories, as we mentioned, uh, in the courts in the last few years. You know, if you even go back to, you know, Hobby Lobby, but you think about Fulton and Trinity Lutheran and Tabor and now the Carson school funding case and then the case with Coach Kennedy. Uh, and there's ones I'm not even naming because there's been too numerous. I mean, ADF has had a pretty great winning streak in the courts, along with some other religious liberty organizations as well. Um so obviously you should be encouraged, Kristen, I, I think, right by the climate in which we're in for religious liberty. Um, are there still some areas that you're very nervous about uh, in terms of the rights of uh, Christian institutions to operate freely? Absolutely. Um, I mean, we have had a great win. I think there's something I might be off on the stats because uh, we've had a few wins already the last couple of weeks, but it's something like 22 of 23 decisions in the religious freedom context. The, the courts have upheld religious freedom at the Supreme Court. Um, so 22 of the last 23. And, and ADF has been fortunate with God's help to have 14 Supreme Court wins since 2011. So, um, I mean, it has been a decade of some pretty hefty victories that, that we've been blessed by. At the same time, those wins have been rather incremental at times in nature. Um, and I think the area that I am most concerned about right now is the area involving human sexuality. Um, you know, you have to be living under a rock to not feel like there is this all-out assault on our families and our belief that God created men and women and that we're, we're beautiful, but we're different and that we're complementary to each other. And so I think... Ensuring that we're continuing to be able to live consistent with our faith and speak consistent with our faith, which the Bible teaches us and science confirms that there are, are two sexes and that, that we're equal and different. And when the law doesn't recognize those differences, when they are legitimate, um, it is women and children that primarily get hurt. So I think you'll see a number of cases that will continue to come up to the court involving issues such as sexual orientation and primarily gender identity also um, as being areas where we need to protect those who hold traditional beliefs on those subjects and not just their right to practice their faith, but their right to be able to speak freely in the marketplace and not be banished from the public square. That's really good. And we need to be praying uh, and thinking about those things. The Biden administration has uh, reversed a lot of the Trump administration kind of protections on uh, some of the Title IX requirements, particularly when we're thinking about higher education, Christian institutions. Um, there's obviously still some some things to worry about there as well. Can you explain some of what we should be concerned about and what perhaps ADF's working on with those things? Sure. Well, we're seeing uh, attacks on free speech and religious freedom play out in a variety of areas involving gender identity. And the Biden administration, um, you know, there are Title IX uh, guidelines. Their Biden administration also acts through executive orders um, and through regulations that really don't even go through a notice and comment period. Um, and it can involve things like private religious colleges being forced to include men in the women's dorms. Um, men who want to identify as women, to obviously the sports issue. We at ADF have a number of cases involving female athletes who have been forced to compete against men. Um, and we know, again, from the science that that's incredibly unfair and unjust and that they are being denied equal opportunities. We also represent, um, you know, 
homeless shelters where men, uh, the government has suggested that men should be admitted to women's shelters, um, jeopardizing the safety and privacy of those women. And then we still have the issue involving uh, creative business owners and whether those who are asked to create custom speech can be forced to violate their convictions by saying things that they don't believe and creating custom speech for same-sex ceremonies and in other areas, including Jack Phillips is still in litigation where he was uh, they, and a transgender attorney demanded that he design a cake celebrating a gender transition. So, you know, one of those cases is going up to the Supreme Court this fall, and we're hopeful that that case will be upheld. But we're fighting this battle on multiple fronts. I should even say healthcare providers. You know, we're seeing the, the Biden administration try to take steps to force healthcare providers to violate their convictions. Um, and we've seen some leftist states that have passed laws that have said, for example, if you're a counselor and you have a patient come to you and say, say you know, I'm, I'm struggling to live at peace with my body, will you help me? The, the law says that the counselor cannot simply listen and counsel that person through talk therapy, that it's Ill illegal now to do that. Um, so these are some of the areas that we continue to fight on through litigation, but also we have set up a, a regulatory team, which we haven't had in the past, to essentially make challenges under the Administrative Procedures Act to slow the Biden administration down and to force them to essentially abide by the procedural requirements that they have not, and in many cases, they have not done that so far. Uh, just a couple more questions before we go, and I appreciate it, of your time. The last thing is uh, ADF has really been helping parents uh, in in some of the kind of challenges around the country uh, in uh, with school boards and some places where perhaps parents have not had the opportunity to kind of help shape the curriculum that their kids are are, are, are learning. Talk about why that's so important uh, at this moment. Well, I would say um, Alliance Defending Freedom has created a number of new teams in recent years, but the two most significant teams or most recent ones would be the regulatory team and the parental rights team. Um, as we started to see this kind of revolution take place where essentially woke school boards were imposing critical theory on parents, imposing gender identity policies, even without their knowledge and sometimes hiding it. Um, and some policies actually we've seen across the United States where teachers are told to lie to parents um, about what's happening in the classroom, about what's happening to their own children. Like let's say that the children expresses confusion and wants to be called you know, a name of the opposite sex. Teachers are told under the policies to lie about that and deceive the parents. So we're challenging those laws. We're also challenging curriculum um, as well and have a number of cases and we're standing up for teachers. We, the Tanner Cross case out of Loudoun County was a case that we had where a PE teacher simply spoke out at a school board meeting to express his concerns about a proposed policy involving gender identity. And he was immediately suspended, threatened with termination. Um, and, you know, I can give you examples. It, it reminds me a little bit, Dan, of, of when we first started litigating cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop involving Jack Phillips. And we would also, also often hear people say, well, that's just one instance, right? It's a one-off. It wouldn't happen in other places. 
we're, we're hearing some of that as well on the parental rights side. Well, it's not in my state or my school district, and it's just not true. Um, you know, we need to start paying attention to what's being taught in our schools and to actively engage and to challenge legally school boards that are really indoctrinating our children in racist ideology and anti-religious ideology. Mm. Well, uh, again, I'm thankful for, for all the work that you uh, and your team at ADF does. Um, helping to secure religious liberty and fight for the sanctity of life. Um, for those who are not in the public square or not sort of, you know, in the courts or in, in the the political movement or uh, maybe working in government who are just average everyday people, what are some things that they can be praying for, number one? And, and number two, what are some things they can do to be involved in a way that's healthy in order to, uh, to ensure that we uh, have religious liberty for the next generation? Well, the first answer is the simplest. It's for pray for spiritual awakening. I mean, that is what we need. We know that our hope lies in Christ. It's not in any government official. The scripture talks about not placing hope in horses or chariots. And frankly, for us, it means even the Supreme Court. Um, that is not where our hope lies. So pray for a spiritual awakening and recommit to churches and the church body. I think we saw, again, we were reminded of the importance of being attached to a church community during the COVID pandemic and, and what those churches can offer. And I think that's a first thing. Um, in terms of praying, pray for our legislators, yes, but also our jurists. Um, so many times we struggle to get politicians to take action, um, but the jurists have to take action and they need to be people of courage as well. And pray for our leaders. Um, I would encourage people to pray for their pastors. Many times pastors are silenced, um, or at least they feel like they're silenced because they're afraid to take criticism in their, in their congregation or from the public for speaking on issues that are a matter of biblical righteousness. And we need to be able to step out. And I think I'd just end with, in terms of what we each can do, I truly believe that God has put each of us in our own sphere of influence. There are people that I will never influence that you will, Dan, and you've done a marvelous job of sharing the Christian worldview and how the Bible relates to real life. We need to be educated in those areas about the word, but also engage with the confidence that the word promises us that it will promote human flourishing, that when we abide by God's word, good things can happen. Um, and so the science will also support us. So I think being educated and being willing to not just defend the right to speak, but to actually walk through that door and to speak the truth. And more than anything else, to pray and speak that truth to our very own children, because it is about the next generation. Great word, great way to end our conversation. Kristen, thank you for all your work. Thank you uh, for coming on the Way Home podcast and uh, appreciative and we'll be watching and praying uh, for, for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Dan, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.